Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi everybody, welcome to Trial Alchemy and I'm delighted today to have as my guest, Brian Chase. Brian's the leader of an eight-attorney AV-rated national law firm up in Newport Beach, been in existence since 1977. Brian is the managing partner, and he's a senior trial attorney, and the firm specializes in automotive defect cases, catastrophic personal injury cases, mass torts, pharmaceutical and medical devices, and Brian's had leadership roles in those cases, employment, consumer class actions. He's also had leadership roles there. Brian's been uh, very involved in legal groups and as uh, part of the leadership, he was the 2015 president of the Consumer Attorneys of California. He was president in 2007 of the Orange County Trial Lawyers Association. Brian's a member of ABOTA. And in 2014 and 2004, he was named Trial Lawyer of the Year in Products Liability by the Orange County Trial Lawyers Association. He was also in 2012 named Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Consumer Attorneys of California. And that same year, he was nominee, uh, nominee for Trial Lawyer of the Year by the Consumer Attorneys Association of LA. Brian's published two books. In 2009, he published a book, Still Safe at Any Speed. And he published a second book in 2019 called The Second Collision. So uh, Brian has been the lead attorney in four important precedent setting appellate cases. And those have dealt with issues like form non-convenes, the consumer expectations test, uh, non-retained expert testimony, and dealing with design immunity. So without any further ado, Brian, thanks so much for being a guest today. It's really a delight to have you here. And I know that uh, people who listen to the podcast are going to learn a great deal from you. So thank you very much. Well, Monty, thank you for having me on. You know, it's a real honor to be here. You know, I'm a big fan of yours. So I'm looking forward to this little dialogue we can have today. So thanks. Well, great. So, Brian, to start off, would you tell us about one of your most satisfying trial victories? Okay. Um, That's an easy one. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say which case is your favorite, but the one I, I, I like to talk about is Romine versus Johnson Controls. And the reason that is so satisfying is twofold. One is we got a really nice, you know, multiple eight figure verdict. So that was great. I got my client compensated, um, which was able to take care of her for the rest of her life, ramp out her house, get her a van, she could drive with her hands and things like that. So that in and of itself is very gratifying whenever we can do that for people. Uh, what makes that case extra special is it went up on appeal and we got a published opinion. And so it's the only published opinion affirmatively saying you can use the consumer expectation t- 
test to prove defect in a seatback case. It's the only one. And so now it's stare decisive. So the gratifying thing about that, obviously, is for as long as that's on the books, who knows how many dozens, hundreds, or thousands of lives won't be saved because cars are still going to be made defectively. But the attorneys trying those cases have a significantly better chance of prevailing with, with the law that I made in that case. So that's really gratifying. Well, good work on that. That's excellent. And that's one of those things where sometimes the attorneys who appeal, which I'm sure the defense appealed it, may end up ruining the day that they file their appeal. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, good attorneys need to be smart on that. Um, yeah. I have lost trials and not appealed certain issues because I knew the law favored me, but I didn't want to get a bad opinion on that one issue. So, you know, Good trial lawyers need to be careful on what they want to appeal. Yeah, I think you're right. And like every part of trial, you have to be very strategic. And you got to be strategic about, do you want to take an issue to the Court of Appeal that may create some bad law for whatever issue you had in your case? Right. No, exactly. Want to be very careful about that. So um, I know you've tried a lot of cases. You've had a lot of success in the courtroom. Now, when you're getting ready for trial and some people may be spending a month, you know, in the pre-trial final prep stage or longer, I kind of think of it as a necessary grind. We have to do the work. We have to get control and mastery of the case. We got to be ready when you hit the courtroom. Is there any kind of a approach you've developed over the years for how you get everything ready in that final stage, whether it's a month or however long it is? Yeah, what I what I do is, and I think a lot of people maybe do this, but if they don't, what I do is I will figure out how much time I think I need to prepare heading into it. You know, it's going to be at least a couple of weeks and sometimes it could be a month. I had a, I had a medical device trial and that was going to be novel for me. So I stayed home preparing for that for about six or eight weeks. But regardless of how much time, I just stay home and isolate myself and uh, you know, get away from the noise of the office and being an office manager and things like that, and just go through the case with a fine-tooth comb, you know, summarize all the depositions, get it all memorized, look at all the exhibits, get that all together. Well, in advance of trial, meet with the technician, start working on opening statement, even closing argument, direct exam PowerPoints, and just, just hunkering down, because as you say, it's a necessary grind. You can't wing that stuff. No, you've got to be prepared. You've got to know where everything is and what you got to deal with once you start that trial, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. But on the other hand, now let's talk about this. If you've done that homework and you've done all that work, like one of the things I've always <clears throat> worried about in getting ready for trials is have I prepared enough? Am I, am I fully prepared? But once the bell rings and you start that trial, you kind of get into the zone, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one is I I never feel fully prepared. I mean, you know, you always want another day of prep or you always want another. I think we're all that way. We're all that way. And, and it does become there's a there's a point in time where it's just kind of paralysis of analysis. And you just got to rock and roll. And as you just pointed out, Monty, if you have done that grind prep work ahead of time, even if you wish you had a little bit more time to prepare, once you start. You are in the zone. You're not thinking about, I wish I would have done this. I wish I had a little more time to do that. At that point in time, once you're in the zone, I know I feel like, man, I got this. I am so well prepared. Let's just let's just go into it. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that could make it really fun. I mean, you're in the trial, but you're in the zone and yeah. you're doing your thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, trials are roller coasters, right? You've got the high days and the low days. <laughs> And, and that's what makes it fun, too. I mean, I guess you'd like every day to be good, um, and they're not. But um, you know, you, when you're very well prepared and you really feel like you've outworked the other side or can on certain issues, it is just so gratifying when you know you got somebody or a certain witness that you're going to be able to attack and sway them over to your side. Well, I think outwork the other side is key. I mean, one of the things that I've always felt, it sounds like you do, too, is you know, somebody might be smarter than somebody else. You got different variations, but my goal is nobody's going to outwork me. And I'm sure that's what you do. You want to be fully prepared. Nobody's going to be out preparing you. Oh, 
hundred percent. And that's been, I've been like that my whole life because I know my limitations and, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. So it might take me two times or three times longer than somebody else to grasp a concept. But what I also know about me is once I have it grasped, nobody is going to be able to out uh, spin me on whatever story it is I have to tell, but I need that extra prep time. And yeah, no one's going to outwork me just, just like you, because you, you got to know where you're weak and where you're strong. And my weakness is I don't grasp concepts immediately, but I know if I put in enough time, I will grasp and I'll, I'll grasp them better than the other side. Yeah, that's key. And that's why you've had a lot of success in the courtroom. So uh, in terms of stories you may tell, uh, one of the things that any good trial lawyer does, especially plaintiffs, but everybody does, is you have themes for your trial. You've got some kind of phrase or theme or way to describe it. So what are some of the most effective themes you've had in your trials that you thought have worked really well? Right. Yeah. So for me and, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, almost all of my trials, maybe all of them have been, have been auto defect trials. And so my theme is pretty pretty consistent, but I've got a couple of variations on it. So one thing I do, and a lot of people do the due products cases, is you have the theme of profit over safety, because in all of these cases, you're going to be able to show that you could have saved a life, you could have had somebody not paralyzed and walked away, or, you know, sometimes as little as five bucks, sometimes for as much as 50 bucks. But so I've always got that profit over safety thing. Um, and then another variation I do in addition to that is you can't talk about law in the opening statement, you know, really, or in voir dire. Um, so I talk about it. I just don't let the jury know I'm talking about it. So if I'm going to go risk benefit, I will start it right out of the gate. Hey, you know, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And then I'll have risks versus benefits up on a PowerPoint slide. And I'm not telling them that's what the law is, but I'm, I'm letting them know, hey, that's what this trial is about, ladies and gentlemen. It's about the risks versus the benefits of this roof or this tire or this whatever. And then my very next slide, for example, if it's a roof crush case, I'll have a car hung upside down, one foot off the ground, drop it, roof flattens like a pancake, okay? Then on the assembly line for $40, I've got one modified. I drop it, it bounces like a ball and doesn't break the glass. So then I reiterate, it's about the risks versus the benefits you know, of that roof. So in my products cases, it's always going to be profit over safety interwoven in with the risk versus benefit and talk about the law and just let them realize, okay, that's what I'm looking at in this case. What are the risks? Serious injury or death? What are the benefits? I save five bucks. And so I, that's really what I hammer in all of my products cases. That's great. Now, in all your products cases and other cases you've tried, you've also seen themes from the other side of the defense. And what kinds of themes have you seen from the other side that you thought were pretty pretty good themes? Yeah, well, if I can't exclude it, and in California, <laughs> in California, I always have except one time. Um, in other states, they have different law than California. So, you know, uh, the theme that the defense wants to bring in is, hey, this vehicle complied with the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Okay, and national polling has shown that at least 10 years ago, I, I don't know where it is now, but two thirds of all jurors or prospective jurors think if a car passes the federal standards, it is kind of per se non-defective. Mm. So, so the themes in these cases, and if I don't exclude it, and if anybody listening has one of these trials come up, you're going to want my motions in lemonade because I keep this out more often than not. But they will come in with the theme of they comply with all the federal motor vehicle safety standards. Aren't we great? And then if the judge allows them, they'll say, hey, look, our car ranks here on a, on a bar graph going up and down. It's better than 75 percent. Our roof is stronger than 75 percent of the other roofs on the road from Chevy, Ford, uh, Mercedes, whatever the case may be. And they like to compare that. And then which is tough. You know, um, and then and then the brutal one is, but there's ways around it. You know, in, in the auto defect cases, it's always a big crash. You know, someone is rolled over at 60 or 70 miles an hour or rear ended at 40, 50 or 60 miles an hour. It's never a fender bender. Right. So the other thing they do is they come in with statistics and they let the jury know if the judge allows them. This crash is in the top one percent of all crashes in the world and just 
play that hell of a wreck defense. So those are the three big things that, you know, you've got to contend with sometimes. And in your motions, have you had success in keeping all three out or two of the three or one of the three? Yeah. Yes. So on the uh, comparisons to other vehicles, I've always been able to keep that out. If, if you dismiss your negligence claims, because it's not, it's not relevant uh, for risk benefits, strict liability. So I keep that out. Um, I have always been able to keep out the federal motor vehicle safety standards. Now, somebody did an appeal a few years ago that has tweaked that a little bit. And I've still not lost the motion, but there'll be the right case where you will now. But I've always been able to exclude that stuff. And that just makes it great. The statistics, um, I've not been able to exclude. You know, one time I got I got their experts stricken just because of foundation on the stats. Right. But that, would, that one normally comes in. And then we just have to argue around it that, well, you know, it might be in the top 1%, but you don't need a safety device when you're in the parking lot. You don't need a safety device in your in your garage. You need an airbag or a seatbelt, you know, when you're in that 1% crash. And you just kind of spin it the other way. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So um, you're trying your cases and you've got all these parts of trial. What part of the jury trial, in your opinion, is the most important? Man. Uh, the short answer is I don't think there's a consistent universal answer for that, uh, <laughs> certainly in my opinion. And, um, you know, if you go by the people, the PhDs, you know, the psychologists and psychiatrists that, that analyze this stuff, they say whatever, 90 percent of people make up their mind in the opening statement. You know, I don't know. Um, so but knowing that people smarter than me have said that, you know, you got to give it give it your go in the opening. But I know, I don't know, but I feel like I have won a lot of cases in closing argument when you can just put it all together uh, and just argue it and spin it your way. So I think it's all important. You know, I think, you know, the opening because the, the people smarter than me say that's important. I'm a big believer in hammering and closing argument. And then, you know, it's also, you know, you've got to keep the jury entertained so that I, I always want right a couple of witnesses it's like a movie you know and I, I used to be an actor back in the old days and, and so i learned a lot about that but we all we all go to movies and when you go to a movie if in the first two or three minutes or five minutes you're hooked you're watching that movie for a while but how many times have you been in a movie for 20 minutes 30 minutes and you're like where is this going and right. i don't want any jurors to do that so i always try to have a good exciting opening statement and then have my first and second witness be like the wow factor to have the jury go, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to tune in. And then you can get some of the boring stuff in the middle. So I think it's all important, man. We're producers, we're actors, it's theater, it's drama, and you just got to do an A-plus on all of it. Well, it's like we're uh, directors. And the thing that's tougher being a trial lawyer is movie director only has one director. Right. Whereas we got another director say to the jury, our case is full of crap. Right. No, that's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You got two movies being shown in this courtroom at at a minimum. Yeah. And you're trying to read your audience, which you can't do because they can't get up and walk out like we can in a movie theater. That's true. <laughs> so I know everything's important in trial, but it sounds like if you were going to say what you think maybe has been most important in your experience, you'd say closing argument. Yeah, I think so. And, and I'll, I'll just weave one thing into that. Um, it's, you know, I videotape all my depositions. And so I, I try to, I've got a little, I won't call it a trick, but a cross-exam thing I do. And I don't consider myself the best cross-examiner of experts. So I've got a Fred Flintstone way I do it. But they will always impeach themselves. I'll have those video clips of the defense. And so in my closing argument, you know, when you're going through the facts and the law, I love to run those video clips of what, what I got the defense to admit and try to taint them. So, yeah. Now, uh, let's talk about video clips for a second since you bring it up. I think those are incredibly powerful. Sounds like you found that to be the case, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, you remember back in the old days when you and I started out, you'd get up in your closing argument and tell the jury, well, remember when witness Smith was on the stand and said this? <laughs> and if your notes don't reflect that, tell the reporter that you wanted to come in and then you got a big, long read back. You know, it was it was a total different animal. Um, and then we had videotapes, VHS, made it hard to edit, but at least we can do it. But now it is so easy. You know, we should be videotaping all of them. And then you can just edit them as you see fit. 
And there's nothing better than just running a clip of an expert. Especially right. You impeached them. Yeah, it, it's just wonderful. And and technically, when you run the clip of the expert, do you just run the video clip or do you also have the transcript transcribed below? You know, I've done it both ways. Um, and, you know, sometimes the witness is hard to understand. Right. So I do it both ways. But then, you know, if, if I'm thinking it through, we know that some people are auditory learners. Some people yep. are visual learners. Yep. And so just showing the videotape is going to get the auditory people, but maybe not the, the readers or the visual people. So typically both for that reason. Okay. Well, let me ask you a little more about closing. Now, um, when you start your trial and you've got your panel of 40 in there in the courtroom, and even after you picked your jury, they don't really know you very much. And you're just getting to know them. And that's even true in the opening statement. But I think a significant difference, and this relates to your closing argument ideas, you've by then, and you better have by then, yeah. established credibility, both as a person, as a lawyer, for your case, for your client, for your witnesses, and doesn't have that's got a big impact in terms of trying to persuade people at the end doesn't it oh absolutely i could think of my two best verdicts i would love to take credit for but i'm going to give the credit to the defense lawyer who, <laughs> lost, who lost credibility i mean from voir dire to opening i mean their opening statement was like a closing argument they're attacking my first witness and you know my belief is uh, you know, you have not earned the right that early on to get your honest indignation hat on. Now, you might have been living this case for years and you might feel honest indignation, but you better start out, you know, pretty objective and fair. I mean, you could hammer here and there depending on the facts. But, yeah, credibility is key and nothing can lose it quicker than if you go in there swinging, I believe, um, until you've earned the right to. Well, I agree with you completely. And I think it's. It, you're spot on in opening statement. I agree with you. I think you have to be objective, impartial, and the jury has to have the sense you're telling them straight. Right. Right. Yes. But by the time you get to the closing, you can show emotion. Oh, and that's the time to, that's the time to bring it all out. Right. Yeah. And if you're not winning by then, it doesn't matter, you know, that you do that. So, <laughs> you know, it, yeah when it comes time for close, tee it high and let it fly and argue your case and, you know, believe in it and show that passion and show why you're right. And, uh, you know, you better do it by that point in time for sure. Yeah. Well, in terms of trying your cases, uh, and we'll get into some of the details of the trial here, but, you know, have you learned any important lessons about trying a case? I mean, what would be one or two important lessons you've learned to say, Hey, this is really key. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I have a key, um, but I will I, I will say a couple lessons I learned when I was, you know, very early on. You know, we're, we're always taught, I believe, I don't know what they teach anymore, but when you and I were baby lawyers, you know, you didn't want to have an expert on your jury panel. They would be an expert in your case if it's a medical doctor or things like that. So I remember thinking, well, there's exceptions to every rule. And I had a case where I had two defendants and I knew the jury would understand why one defendant was negligent. And I thought, but the jury's not going to appreciate why the second defendant is negligent. So I left a PI attorney on my jury panel. And I thought, they'll go back there. You know, they believe in my side. They do what I do for a living. And they're going to explain to the jury why that other defendant is in the case. So I ended up winning the trial. Uh, verdict was 11 to 1. And it was the lawyer who wanted to defense me. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and so, you know, I mean, I, I don't have a black and white hard line rule that, you know, you don't have experts on, but I did violate the rule there and it really did blow up on me. Now I've had engineers on my jury when I just run out of peremptories and couldn't get them for cause. Right. And I, and I've had them do fine for me. So, you know, I don't know if that's a rule or not, but I, you know, that would, that was one big lesson. And so I typically will never have experts on my panel, at least as a bright line test initially. And then we'll, we'll see what happens after that. Uh, okay. And then, you know, I think it just, just goes back to the preparation. I mean, I know, you know, we've all had those cases where we prepared really hard, but, you know, 
you might be I get caught up running the law firm and not as prepared as much as you want to be. So you're doing a lot of prep during trial. Now, I've not had that backfire on me that I'm aware of. And I got I've had good verdicts where I am scrambling during trial doing that. But you're up till two or three in the morning, you know, yeah. and that's four in the morning. That's no way to try a case. I mean, the goal is to have it ready and, and get to bed at a reasonable hour. Right. You don't want to be exhausting yourself during the trial by having to work 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I know better than to do that, but Hey, we all don't always follow our own advice. Well, you know, the, the lesson you talked about learning as far as that, um, person with expertise, the PI lawyer seems to me that one of the things we, that happened to me, and I'm sure it happens to all of us as younger lawyers mm -hmm. is for example, I think we believe. Uh, naively, as a young trial lawyer, that we're going to be able to overcome some problems. As right. an example, let's say you get a potential plaintiff and that you think they've got a great case, mm -hmm. but you can't stand them when you're interviewing them. Now, mm -hmm. I think the mistake I made as a young lawyer is I would tend to think, oh, I can fix them up, I can clean them up, but I think I learned with time and experience that nope, that no. doesn't happen, right? Yeah, no, that that that's a great point, and I, we all had those cases. And I'm going to say more often than not, you know, 90 plus percent of the time, you know, uh, a, a bad plaintiff or a plaintiff that doesn't come across well, you're you're not going to fix them. Um, yeah. You know what, what I have done, and, and I'd be curious to see what you have done when I've had two or three family members that are going to have to testify on an issue and I'm concerned about them doing a good job. Um, so, you know, I'll bring in a jury consultant sometime and let them work with them and just kind of sit and loosen them up. I've never had that be overly effective because then they get on the witness stand. I've just not seen it work too often. Now, one, you know, a few times though, when I've done that with a few family members and I've had, I've, you know, you've got the one plaintiff that you think like, oh man, they're just, that's a hard nut to crack. They're gonna be that way. And the other two are just all over the place sitting there all day or for several hours with a jury consultant, sometimes you find that one that's the hard nut to crack, they end up opening them up. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you'll go, wow, they're, they're going to be my star witness now. So occasionally the silent ones that you think are just not going to open up, you can open up and be okay. But the ones that just come across poorly for all the various reasons, no, I, I factor that into the case and, and, you know, and, and do you really, really want to try it? Yeah. Okay, now we're getting ready for trial, and this you can do early in the case, you can do closer to trial. Uh, how often do you get involved in uh, having focus groups or doing mock trials, and what are the benefits you've seen from that? Yeah, um, I do um, all the time. I won't maybe say in every single case, although probably every case going to trial, or every case I'm, I'm unsure on settlement value and strengths and weaknesses. So I do you know, mock trials all the time. Like, you know, for example, I've got a, a case coming up right now um, that doesn't have the best plaintiff, um, but uh, the, the, but I, I have a decedent that lived for a couple months. And in California now we have pre-death pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, wow, you know, what's a jury gonna do with that? I know I really can't put the error on the stand. I'm actually, you know, thinking of letting them out of the case and just trying to pre-death pain and suffering case. And we're going around the office and one of my partners is, you know, it's a hundred grand. The jury's not going to give you money for that. And, and, you know, other people, a few hundred grand. And I'm like, I don't know. And so I did three focus groups before the mediation and was shocked at the eight figure numbers that, that the, the focus groups were spitting out now. Were they deceited? Yeah. Wow. And now, I'm not taking that to the bank. It's just right. a data point. I, real, I right. realize that, but that was very enlightening for me. So I'm digging into that further now. I'm going to do some more focus groups on that issue. Um, and it, just one other little example of a focus group I did, and this was years ago and something I didn't think of. I had a, a little kid who got burned uh, and, you know, he got burned pretty bad. And there was an argument that the, the parents were comparatively negligent. They were out camping. And mm -hmm. so he was inside the trailer sleeping and they're out at the campfire. I mean, you got to let your kids sleep. So I never really thought that they were comparatively negligent, but there was an argument uh, that they were. And so I did a focus group and I'm showing 
you know, pictures of the kid out on the campsite, jumping his little motorcycle. He's like eight years old, jumping his motorcycle and showing how he used to be active was my point. And now he can't be that active anymore. And they took that away from him. When I'm watching behind the two-way mirror, the, the focus group of the, the jurors talking, they come up with, you know, I don't think those parents did anything wrong. They're safe people. I mean, look at their child riding that motorcycle. He's got a helmet on, gloves on, leathers on. They've got him all protected. Never dawned on me to, to use that to, to say on how careful they were. And there, I have a lot of examples like that from focus groups. So they're invaluable because they think it's stuff that we don't. Yeah, that's a great example. And I'm sure you've um, had other cases where you had some problem issue or something, and then you do focus groups and they've given you a way to either discuss it or maybe a phrase to use. Have, has that happened? Oh, that's happened for sure. They can give you a theme. They can give you phrases. They can show you some evidence that you are kind of discounting. And all of a sudden, that's maybe why you're winning the focus group. So it's invaluable. Now, I, I want to caution everybody. You know, the reason I think we should always do more than one, and this happened to me when I was a baby lawyer, is I had a tough case and I did a focus group and there was an issue that came up. And so I lost my focus group on that issue. And it was an issue that I could easily, easily fix. Now, I didn't bother doing another focus group. I've been, been a lawyer for a couple of years. You know, we didn't have a big budget. So I go try the case and I get around that issue, but I get defensed on another issue. And I was just too young and green to appreciate, you know, if a jury's going to defense you, they're looking for a reason to do it. So just because you fix something doesn't mean there's not another reason that they're going to defense you if it's a difficult case. So, you know, that's a cautionary tale, I think, if you're going to do focus groups. Don't do one and then just think you've got a winner and you can take it to the bank. You've got to do several. Yeah, you can't assume that you've uncovered all the issues with one right. focus group. Right, right, for sure. And, you know, I was young and green and it was 30 years ago. <laughs> okay, so now uh, before the jury panel comes in, you're going to be doing some motions in limine. Now, a lot of trial judges will complain that too many motions in limine are filed. But from your perspective on the plaintiff side, you mentioned something already. You'll file these kind of motions about preventing certain things from the defense in your defect cases. Do you have any other kinds of motions in limine that you found to be effective on your side of the case? Um, I mean, yeah, the short answer is yes. So my rule of thumb on that is uh, I, I want to exclude on the products cases, again, the stuff I've already talked about, federal motor vehicle safety yep to test things like that but then i'll also if the defense has done certain tests uh you know sled testing car to car crash testing i'll do a motion to exclude that not that i'm going to win it but so when they do the motion to exclude mine the judge is just going to let it all in so you know one of my strategies is and i i think it's i don't think it's a, it's a secret a lot of people probably do it yeah is I'll file some motions to lose so i can win the ones that i really have to win and not look like i'm just winning everything in my favor now, that's not to say I file 20 or 30 motions in lemonade to lose 20 of them. You know, I like to keep it under 10 if I can. You can't always, but I like to keep it 10 or less. And I will have a few in there that are just kind of throwaways. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes good sense. Yeah. But there's a lot of motions that tend to be filed, especially on the defense side, where uh, trial judges will often be saying, look, you're asking me to prejudge the case. Uh, but they can say that to the plaintiffs, too. So... Uh, you're not going to win all those motions, but that's a good strategy you've got. Now, let's say you've anticipated an issue and you don't know where the other side has spotted it. Maybe it's an evidentiary issue or something else. Um, and I've had a practice of what I've done in trials, but do you do anything? Because, you know, the problem, if you spot an issue and you make it a motion lemony, you're telling the other side about it if they don't know about it. So how do you deal with that? Man, um, put on your seatbelt and say a prayer because, uh, you know, obviously, if it's really bad, you're going to want to bring it out um, just in case it comes out. You better nip it in the bud. And But if it's remote enough, then you've, you're in that dilemma of, well, I don't think they're going to find out. I don't think they'll pick up on this. And, and, and so I'm not going to bring it up. Uh, you know, an example that comes to mind, and it's not on a piece of evidence. If it's a piece of evidence... I'm normally going to know that they're going to figure it out, even if they haven't got brought it up in depot. I'm going to just bring it up uh, because 
if it's something an expert that did or a certain fact in a case, they're going to, they're going to stumble onto it if they haven't already, maybe they're sandbagging me. But I tell you one time I was in this trial in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the morning before we start trial, not start trial, we're in trial the morning before this witness is going to take the stand, we're having breakfast and I'm going through, uh, you know, the prep with them, re you know, rehashing what we did the night before. And he says, Hey, Brian, you know, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever brought this up to you before, but you know, a long time ago, my testimony got stricken in this case. Okay. <laughs> and, it was, and, and it was like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I mean, it was a long time ago. But this expert was a national, well renowned expert and had testified in his expert deposition that he had never had his testimony stricken. Oh. So, I'm, so I'm sitting here at breakfast, you know, one angry, why are you telling me this now? You, you knew this a long time ago. You could have at least not popped it on me the morning I'm walking into court. And so I was sitting there, you know, what do I do? And debating it about, I'm talking to the trial team now on that one because it did seem so remote. And I wasn't aware of him being impeached over the years because I've used this guy a lot. I did not bring it up and it didn't come out. But boy, when they went up to cross-examine him, that was a nerve-wracking, you know, hour. <laughs> yeah, you do get nervous when your witness is being crossed and you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was not a that was not a fun moment. So, yeah, that's a tough part of the trial. I mean, as a, as a well-prepared trial lawyer. You're always sitting there trying to keep your poker face, whether it's your client or other witnesses, and you're hoping to hell they don't screw up on the witness stand, but you can't control it. No, there, I mean, that's kind of the fun part about trial. I think why people like us enjoy it. I mean, obviously, we want to help people and help make their lives better, but right. the intellectual challenge of it is a lot of fun. And that roller coaster, you know, I've had cases where the defense in the middle of trial want to popping a test. And I'm like, Your Honor, they can't do that in the middle of trial, yada, yada, yada. And it comes in. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no, lunch break, what am I going to do? This is going to torpedo my case. And then you chew on it for a little while. And then end up, I end up using that test in my closing argument because it helped me. So that's one of the fun things, too. You never know these this bad stuff that happens during trial can end up being a blessing. It uh, can so be a blessing. And you don't even know it first. Right. Yeah. yeah. But your knee-jerk reaction, something new is like, no, 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 danger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so now in uh, your panels come in, you're starting to pick your jury in voir dire. Do you uh, tend to give a mini opening in every case these days? And when you do give a mini opening, what's your strategy and how do you approach it? Yeah, um, I do. I, I love mini openings. I think it's a lot better than obviously reading a statement of the case. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and, and, you know, what I do is I, I do a mini opening, you know, with the intent on, you know, be having it be very vanilla, you know, you don't go in there and try to win it. You know, I mean, I really, it, it's too extreme to say I go in there to lose it, but it's closer to wanting to lose it than win it, uh, for me anyway. And I, I think a lot of people look at it that way because then you're going to get, you're going to pick out your badgers right away. And if you, if you, if you give a very you know, vanilla mini opening, one that you would never give in your regular opening, you're going to get some of those jurors that just anchor themselves to some very bad statements and you're going to get them off for cause where we've all had the experience in the old days, you know, when they do the statement of the case, nobody knows what it's about. You get a bad juror, you, you get to admit that they 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 can't follow the law. And right. then it's like, well, you'll follow the law, won't you, sir? And then they rehab them and they go, yes, I will. <laughs> With the mini opening, you know, you get them to sometimes just say stuff that even the, even a bad judge that wants to rehab them by intimidating them can't do. So I'm a big fan of mini openings. Do you yeah. talk about bad facts in your mini opening? Yeah, I mean, I, I make it more about that really than the case itself. I mean, obviously you talk about your damages and stuff, but yeah, I, I highlight the bad facts and and because and I, I want to hear what those folks are going to have to say about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now one of the things we talked about earlier is you're getting to know the jury at the beginning and you, you're developing this credibility and developing a relationship that becomes really important by the close. So as a plaintiff's lawyer, and you, you're, you're only going to go to trial probably on cases where you've got significant injuries, you're talking about a significant award, when do you first bring up dollar numbers? Okay. Um, 
Great question. I bring them up in Vladir because um, I just I want to know right out of the gate. And, and, and it's easy with the catastrophic injury case because, yeah. you know, I, I think even even bad jurors, if they see somebody in a wheelchair or someone lost their child, you know, I mean, no one's that evil that just want to hate you. Um, and so I bring it up, you know, write an opening statement. Now, one thing I don't do, and there's a handful of really good lawyers that do this, they will say, for example, right in voir dire, hey, at the end of this trial, I'm going to ask you for $30 million, and they'll just come up with the actual number. I'm not that confident, because if my trial goes really well, I might ask for a number bigger than that. And if it doesn't go well, I might ask for a number less than that. And you got to believe in your case. So you're probably going to stick with your number. But what I will do things like this, um, if I've got a, a life care plan for a paralyzed client, and let's say the life care plan's $15 million, right. you know, I, I will do the generic vaudeer, anybody, you know, raise hand if they think there's a, a maximum amount they could award, anybody doesn't believe in awarding money for things like this. And I'll say, well, we've got a life care plan in this case, it's $15 million. So I'm going to be asking you for $15 million to compensate my client for that. And then several million on top of that at the end of the trial. I kind of do it openly that way. Yeah. Okay. So you bring it up early, Yeah. but you're using it tied to some kind of a more objective thing that one of your experts has given you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's just like, that's probably my own insecurities because I know some lawyers that will, will just go out there and ask for the blanket number, but you know, no case, rarely anyway, goes to trial unless there's really good facts and bad facts on both sides. Totally. And, and you know, you talk about the credibility factor and earning the jury's trust. You know, my concern is if I got up in voir dire and said, hey, on this case, I'm going to ask for $50 million. You know, I'm worried I may turn some off. Now, again, that's just my own insecurities. I know some lawyers that just play like, hey, I'm going to win no matter what. And they're just going to say it but I don't want to turn anybody off. So I anchor it to like the medical specials because that's not really in dispute. Yeah. I don't know if it's insecurity, Brian. I know I've, I've done a lot of plaintiff's trials and I was always thinking about that issue is I don't want to offend the jury right. with whatever the number is. Right. But so I, I want to be careful about how I approach it. And I, you certainly want, you know, a number you think is fair. Right. And the case will go different ways and you might feel differently at the end. Yeah. Okay. So in your voir dire, uh, you're probably, do you use jury consultants in every case or a lot of cases? Yeah. In a, in a majority of them I do. Um, yes. And do you, do you tend to follow their recommendations most of the time, or do you also go with your own instincts as trying to pick people and use your peremptories? Well, it's interesting. So uh, I'm going to sound like this insecure person now because I'm going to talk about another insecurity. You know, one reason I use them is um, just to make sure that myself and my team. Well, let me ask, answer the question this way. Typically, I agree with the jury consultant. Usually at the end of it, we're all in agreement. And if there's a disagreement on one or two jurors, it's not like a strong disagreement. Right. And so if it's if it's not a strong disagreement and I really respect the consultant I'm working with and I wouldn't use them if I did it, I, I may defer to them on that one. But again, 95% of the time we all agree anyway. And that's one reason kind of why I use them because they pick juries every week. You know, we pick maybe one or two a year. Right. So since they do it all the time. I want to make sure I'm doing it right or I'm my radar is right. And when we're all in agreement, it just gives me kind of a, it's really a security blanket. Yep. That makes sense. So in, in, in time, in your auto defect cases, are you looking for particular types of people as far as background or experience, either the ones that you want to keep or the ones you want to throw off? Well, you know, we all have the stereotypes um, of certain kind of jurors that you, that are going to be good for a plaintiff or bad for a plaintiff, whether it's on liability facts or damages, right. things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely have my, you know, my, my checklist of, okay, the stereotypes are there, but you can't just hang your hat on that because I've, I've had, you know, jurors that were, were the stereotypical juror. And I just am, fell in love with them when I'm picking, they're saying all the right stuff. And I'm like, okay, they've got five stars saying they're good. They've got one 
you know, one bad star just because they're stereotype of some category and gone with them. So, you know, I think a lot of those stereotypes can hold true, but you certainly don't want to hang your hat on it because you've got to talk to the people and and you'll get a vibe typically, I think, if someone's BSing you. I mean, I right. guess if someone's a total mole, they can trick you, but, you know, if you talk to them long enough, I, I usually feel pretty good about it. Now, before uh, we had a discussion before this interview, and we were talking about uh, approaches to things, and I know you've got a spiritual look about life. And one of the things I'd like you to share, if you're willing to, is I think you've got a little different approach when you're talking to that panel who's come in, where you got 40 people and you got 12 people in the box. What's yeah. that approach? Yeah. So, yeah. So on this like spiritual component, just to to put a little meat on that bone, if people don't know what that means or, or they think it means something, it doesn't. For me, what I'm talking about, and you and I have talked about this, I read like Deepak Chopra books, uh, Wayne Dyer, The Power of Intention, books like right. that. So right. I do I do, and have for years lived my life that way. So I do believe in, you know, in putting out good vibes and good energy. So when I'm picking a jury uh, and I'm sitting in there in the courtroom, uh, I will look at them you know, when they're in the box, 18, you got a six pack, six out front, 12 in the box. I will yep. look at them on, and each one of them and silently say things like, you know, um, you know, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. I love you. I'll just, I'll say things like that subconsciously just to try to make some kind of spiritual connection or I'm, you know, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm saying this right now, this is interesting. So if you believe in that stuff, um, you know, then I find it helps me because I know a lot of lawyers and even jury consultants. I'll be picking a jury and go, oh, man, that guy's an AH or that person sucks. And the jury might even pick up on you doing that in front of them. Yeah, and I want to I want to balance myself to be as fair and objective as I can. And when I do that, it helps me, you know, I, I think, put on a, a good, good front. If it's all a bunch of mumbo jumbo, who cares? It didn't hurt anything. Well, you know, I, I think that stuff does work. Uh, you and I have talked about this. And from a from a uh, quantum physics standpoint, everything is really energy at the lowest level. And I think there is that energetic connection. And so why not use tools that maybe aren't the traditional tools? And if anything can possibly help, why not? Right. No, I, I, I agree. And and that's why I do it. And and, it, and it's really it's important for a couple of things. I mean, if you believe in the, you know, the vibrational stuff that we're talking about in quantum physics, it's a no brainer to do it, but also it'll, it'll help center me because we do get those jurors on there. Yeah. And we, we just have a knee jerk reaction and can't stand them. And I don't want that to subconsciously come out of me that I don't like you or the jury goes, man, Chase doesn't like this guy. So, yeah. Okay. So I will even do it one, just to keep me in check. If it's somebody I don't like, I'll I'll go out of my way to, you know, I love you. You're great. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time subconsciously. So when I'm talking to him, hopefully I'm not frowning and scowling. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I think that's great for the audience to hear about that. So um, when you're giving your opening statement, you've talked about this a little bit, but what's your strategy and approach there? It's definitely different from closing. Yeah. Um, I try to, you know, one is, you know, I want to make it like a movie and entertaining. So I want to start right out, you know, and it's kind of easy in the products cases because we always run a test or multiple tests. Yeah. And the nice thing about that is it'll show the defect can be fixed for a few bucks. So I start right out wanting to hook them with that kind of stuff. Um, and then I might get into some more of the, you know, the, the more boring. Then I'll, well, I start out wanting to hook them on the risk versus benefit stuff and the profit over safety theme. And then I'll just kind of go beginning through end and go through the reconstruction, just sort of in chronological order. Yep. Um, and uh, you definitely want to hit on the defenses. So I will have, you know, certainly a segment on what, what defense contentions are. Right. I don't want to give it a lot of weight, but, you know, you want to take the wind out of their sails. Uh, so I definitely have that. And then you definitely want to touch on damages. I save that for the end. You know, because you don't want to offend the juries, uh, you know, uh, you know, coming out of the gate like that. Right. Um, and then I try to and, and I had a jury consultant do this for me. I used to be one of those a little more honest indignation in my openings. Not bad, but that's just a natural instinct of mine. 
And I was working with a jury consultant, I don't know, 15 years ago and saying, hey, here's how I want to do that. This case is about the risks versus the benefits. And the jury consultant said, you know, you're telling people how to think right out of the gate. And they may not want to, they may not think like you and you may want to tone it down. And so um, you've got to be yourself. So if that's yourself and you're winning, do it. You know, you can't copy anybody else. But I can tell you, it it took things back a little bit. And the first time I did that, I got a multiple eight-figure verdict. And I thought it was the worst opening statement of my life because I just wasn't pounding them. And and so, yeah, a little bit more mellow, a little bit more objective, and and just kind of lay it out on on what you think the evidence is going to show. Yeah. Well, it's like you got to tell them the story. But instead of telling them what they should decide, you're telling them a story so they'll come to that conclusion. Right. And I always felt there was, you know, one, you know, this kind of this character trait about me. And it's I've always been a pretty credible person, you know, and it's probably because I don't lie, cheat or steal. And so, you know, honest guy. But I've always found whether it was in college or high school uh, or law school, people would tend to believe me or trust me. And so. I used that when I was trying cases to to ram it down their throat. And I was telling the jury consultant, I'm not ramming it down their throat, man. People believe me. I'm an honest guy, so I can do that. And they're going to know I believe it, and they're going to believe it. And she's going, no, Brian, no, no, no. And uh, so I've toned that back. <laughs> well, and, and you've gotten great results doing it. Yeah, no, it it, it has helped tremendously. So Yeah, sometimes uh, we've got to tone ourselves back a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, we do. And, you know, I, I see some lawyers get good verdicts and, and, and come out of the gate doing that, too. So I don't want to tell anybody, you know, to, to change their style. But if you're having problems with your style and, and, and you're doing that, yeah, then maybe you should tone it down a bit. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah. when you're in your trial and you're doing your direct and cross, uh, with cross-examination, seems to me, I think of cross as kind of two types of cross. The traditional closed cross where you ask a question, trying to get a yes or no, you know the answer all the time. And then there's kind of what I call the open cross, kind of a Jerry Spence approach of, I'm not asking the closed question, I'm kind of telling my story and I don't really care what your answer is. Do you tend to use one or the other form or do you tend to use both and you mix it up? Yeah, both. I think you have to use both. Certainly the the close cross, I mean, I think you want to do that for sure. I've never not done that. And, yeah. and, and, and one little little trick I do is with experts, I will literally type up the question that I ask him in the deposition when I got the answer from him. And uh-huh. I will say it verbatim. And as soon as they disagree, and then we go have a sidebar, and they're like, wait a minute, Your Honor, you know, Mr. Chase didn't impeach him. And I go, have the reporter read back the question I just asked. It's verbatim from the depot. So I will find, you know, three to six areas uh, with experts and literally almost almost read the question back, although I don't want to sit there and read in front of the jury. So, you know, I do that just to get the impeachment stuff that I know I'm going to run in closing argument. But then you also, to, to go to your Jer- Jerry Spence analogy, is, is just tell your story. Because even though the judge tells the jury questions aren't evidence, you know, if you tell your story effectively, you know, some of the jurors are going to going to hear what your story is. And they'll understand why you're going where you're going. So I think it could be pretty darn effective. Oh, yeah. No, someone that's really, really good at it. I mean, there's some people, you know, that are masters at that. And, you know, Spence is one of them. But I've seen some lawyers are just great. You know, I I'm going to say I'm OK at it. You know, I know it's important. So I do it. Yeah, but you know, but I, I, you know, what I don't like about it is you're telling your story, and then you're getting this answer, and there's always a piece of me that's like, I hope the jury's not paying attention to the answer, and I hope they're paying attention to my story. To me, it's a little more daring to do it that way, but you know, I think all good trial lawyers do it. Well, I think it is a little more daring, but on the other hand, it kind of depends upon if you've got a compelling and believable story that holds up. Right. And sometimes that open, close, cross is very effective because whatever their answer is, it's not going to make a lot of sense. The jury's going to go, that guy's full of crap. Right. Nope. Yep. That, 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 that's, the, that's the prayer. <laughs> yeah, that's the prayer. Now, what happens? Some, I don't know that uh, 
experienced trial lawyers will do this, but you know, when you're young lawyers in law school and you're taught this thing, never ask a question where you don't know the answer. You ever ask questions where you're not entirely sure what the answer is gonna be? Rarely, but yes. I mean, as a general rule, I like to follow that, but there are, there are times that, and it's just kind of an instinctual thing, you know, there yeah. are, you know, it, you know, and it happened in my last trial and I was, I was cross-examining this witness and I didn't know the answer. And there was a good piece of me that thought he may not know the answer either uh, on this really complicated mathematical formula. And so um, I'll never forget this. I'm, I'm thinking if he answers it, it's not going to hurt me anyway. Yeah. You know? uh, and so I'm going to ask when I said, you know, I go, you know, Mr. So-and-so, can you get up you know, and go over to the butcher paper and can you show the jury your math on that? Oh, there was like four lawyers at the defense table. Their jaws dropped. <laughs> and, and I realized when I saw their jaws drop, they knew he probably wasn't going to be able to do the math. <laughs> uh, and he didn't. I mean, he, he didn't. He missed it by a couple of decimal points. So you know, I won't bore you with the details. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, so definitely. <laughs> you know, definitely. You know, it's kind of an instinctual thing, you know, and I know I've seen people do that effectively, even if they get some bad answers. I noticed defense lawyers do it a lot. You know, I don't see yeah. those plaintiff lawyers doing it. And I hate it because which which te which teaches me to to think I should maybe do it more which is why you're probably asking this question cuz I'll sit there and defense lawyers don't mind asking five questions in a row and they're just getting burped up on by the witness then on the sixth question all of a sudden they hang a left turn and it comes back to them and they stumbled onto something they don't mind fishing in front of the jury you know I, I don't like to do that that much but I I will do yeah. it time I think you're right the defense lawyers will fish more but the, the other way I've seen this work, and it's the exception to the general rule, is sometimes when you think about a question and an issue, and you've done your prep, so you're really well prepared, you realize, I don't know the answer, but there's no good answer they can give for them. Exactly. It won't hurt me, whatever their answer is. And right. that's, you should always ask that question. Right. If right. you can see it. Yeah, no, and it was kind of like that math question I did. They brought in this engineer. Yeah this very complicated electronic system in a car <laughs> in my head. I'm like, you know, they didn't produce a document to show that formula in discovery. And I think this guy just might be up there being a paid mouthpiece. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's fun stuff. Okay. So we've, we've put on your evidence and I'm sure you use in graphics and all this stuff. You probably even use it in your opening statement, right? To tell the story. Absolutely. But now you get to the closing argument. So tell us about the emotion and the compelling argument and how you're putting that together. What's your strategy in closing? Yeah. So, you know, it's, for me, it's the most fun part of trial because you can be argumentative. So obviously yeah. it's the best part. And then I use a lot of, you know, and I didn't invent this, you know, I, I've stolen ideas from the best of the best. We all stand on each other's shoulders. We so, all steal. You know, we, we know that some jurors are auditory learners, some are uh, visual learners, some are, and I forget the word, but it's meaning they touch stuff. So I will- Kinesthetic. Kinesthetic, thank you. Um, I, I will hand things to the jury for that reason. Um, you're gonna want your PowerPoint with not, not a lot of words, but a word or like risk versus benefit. Um, so I, I wanna combine all of those things. So the jury, depending on how they primarily learn, will learn. And then there's some psychological components, like when I'm getting to the law, and a lot of people do this, but a lot don't, is I'll have, when, I, when I'm putting the law up on a PowerPoint slide, you know, the background will be like books, like law books that say law on it. So, you know, ah. subconsciously, ah, this is the law. Um, when I get into my section, and I, I took this from, from Brian Panish, and he might have taken it from somebody else or the trial techie, but when I get to the defense contentions, that's a black slide and in red, blood red, defense contentions. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of just like psychological things right. like that. And then, and then one thing I do uh, in my closes, cause it just, I think the cases, my cases are so complicated that I think it just helps organize it. So in the old days, when you and I were starting out, we'd give our closing argument, then we'd go get a paper verdict form and put it on the Elmo. And then we'd answer the questions. For them, <laughs> you know. So what I do now is I'll start out for five or 10 minutes and 
I'll, I'll do my, you know, I have a Margaret Mead quote I do, and I want to empower the jury and the conscience of the community and all of those types of things and talk uh, in, 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 a, in a, you know, in a five minutes to kind of discuss some of the evidence why we should win. But then when I get into my real part of the opening, I've got a PowerPoint slide that shows that it's, it's the verdict form. And I'll say, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have this in the back of the room. Right. And I'll hit the button and question number one will come up, you know, is the product effective? And then I'll go into all that defect evidence. And then I'll come back and say, have the box check. Yes, it is. And I, su I suggest, I don't tell them, I suggest, I would have told them 15 years ago. Now to say, I suggest the evidence supports this, that you ought to find it uh, was defective. And I go through the whole verdict form that way. And it might sound kind of boring, but there's so much evidence in between just showing that question. I think it helps walk the jury through how they're going to process it in the jury room. Cause I hate it. And we've all had this experience. I'm sure you have too. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, you're, you'll get a jury question on, you know, what does substantial factor mean? And then you end up learning later on, they'll come back and go, can we have a definition of negligence? And I'm like, Oh man, they're all over the map. And I want them to answer it the way I think they should answer it as well. So I use some, you know, psychology, psychological stuff. This is the law defense contentions, the black hat, my impeachment videos, and walk them through the verdict form. But I think you do have to walk them through the verdict form. And you've yeah. got to explain why they should answer the questions the way you're suggesting. And, yeah. and you really got to got to do that. That's critical. Yeah. So go ahead. I tell you, Brian, this has been a great conversation. We're getting near the end of our time. And one of the things I wanted to uh, let me ask you this first, and then I'll go to some final questions. Sure. Every time we have a trial, whether it's a couple of days or a couple of weeks or longer, there's always going to be this adrenaline crash afterwards where you've been working so hard for so long and the body just goes, boom, I got to recharge. Yeah. What have you found to be an effective way to get back and recharge and give yourself a break after your trial? Yeah. Uh, sleep. No, um, you know, it, 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 sleep. It, what is funny is, you know, the last day of trial after I have given, you know, the last day of trial, if it's on a Friday, let's just say I have found, I will routinely sleep 14, 15 hours. Yeah. And I never do that. You know, maybe I could do it when I was a kid, but which just shows you how, how crashed you are or how burnt out your body is. It just needs that much sleep. But really after that, um, you know, for me, trials are just so intense. After I get that good night of sleep, I'm I'm pretty good right after that. You know, you know, win, lose, or draw. Uh, trials are so stressful. It's nice to be out of them. I'm not one of those guys. I mean, I, I love trying cases, and you've got your highs, highs, yeah. and your lows. But I, my analogy has always been: when I'm in trial, I'm like on the bottom of the ocean, and it's just dark and gray and gloomy. Now I can see what I'm doing, but everything is just in slow motion. And there's no sun, there's no cloud. I'm just down there. So when I get out of trial, it's like I've reemerged out of the ocean and there's a beautiful blue sky and there's a bright orange sun. And that's enough just to get me fired up that I'm out of trial. I'm just I'm oh, glad, yeah. I'm glad I'm out of it. So one good night of sleep or maybe, you know, a few good nights of sleep. But I recharge pretty quickly. You do recharge quickly. I mean, I don't know that I've slept 15 hours, but usually seems to be you need to get a few nights of good sleep and you're starting to feel pretty normal yeah i know a lot of people that sometimes literally they'll, i'll talk to them even people in my office take them a couple weeks yeah they just can't get it out of their head for a couple weeks i'm you know i'm really i'm really pretty good at it. when it's done it's done i'm 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 not at the bottom of the ocean anymore uh and you know i'm gonna go enjoy my life with family and friends for a few days yeah i'm good about getting it out of my head it's just letting the body get the yeah. rest it needs yeah. well that's great well let me ask you this as we get here to the close you know is there any piece of advice that you either were given as a young lawyer or that you would give to young lawyers now to who want to become good trial lawyers what's something you could share with them to say this has really helped me yeah um so advice I got when I was younger, and I would still give it to this day, is if you want to be a trial lawyer, you have to try cases, you know, and until you try cases, you can't even take a good deposition. We've all, as soon as you do your first trial, 
and you're reading your lousy depositions that you can't cross-examine anybody on. So you've got to get in court. So I know what I did early on, and, and I know a lot of the really good trial lawyers now that have been doing it a long time, you know, they just started out trying cases. So I would, and they don't have to be complicated. I'd get a file on a Friday. We did last minute trials. Someone gives yeah. me a file on Friday. I go try it on Monday, you know, rear render, soft tissue case. But you really just got to get out there and try cases. Um, one, to develop your skill. And then two, you know, to be a successful plaintiff's lawyer, you know, you're going to settle a lot of cases too. Um, Cause it's going to be in your client's best interest to settle cases and you can't get good settlement value until the insurance companies or the, the defendants know you're going to try cases. Even if you don't win them all, if they just know you're going to trial and you're not going to roll over and settle a case for 25 cents on the dollar, that's important too. So I think kind of twofold, go try cases, ask for last minute trials. There's a lot of law firms that will refer those cases out to you. So try your cases um, and then that will also help you as you develop your career because the insurance companies will know, oh, you're a real trial lawyer. You're not a settlement lawyer. No, you're absolutely right. If the insurance company, and I started out as a defense lawyer, but went to doing the plaintiff side, you know, if you only settle cases, they know it and they're not going to give you a top dollar. Absolutely. And even if you go to trial, you got to be willing to go to trial and lose and you're going to lose some cases, but yeah. you're going to get better settlements because they know you're prepared you're dangerous, you're going to do the job right, and they have the greatest risk. That's how you get the best result for your client. So I think your advice is spot on. Yeah, and something you said there is so important. Um, you can't be afraid to lose. And it's very natural for us to go try certain cases to have a little bit of fear about it if you know you're, it's an uphill battle. But I know some lawyers that are just so afraid to lose, they, just, they don't try any cases. And you, you just got to put that fear out of you and just march ahead. Yeah, can't be afraid to lose. And I remember trying a case and I lost and you know, you, you hate it when you lose. You're so invested in it. You only took it because you believe in it so much. You work your ass off. But the irony that it turned out is that lawyer who's one of the top defense lawyers in town, he totally treated me differently after that. Oh, I... and that loss, that loss was a game changer as far as future results for my clients. Oh. I've got a similar story and, and I won't name names, but same thing. I was a younger lawyer and getting really jacked around uh, on a case that, um, you know, I probably should have lost, ended up not losing it. And then this defense lawyer who's got their own big defense firm now offered me a job after trial you know, <laughs> after they, after they got me jacked around and, you know, and I, I politely declined, you know, if I work for you and I got to treat lawyers the way you were treating me, I don't want to ever work for you, but thank you for the kind words. <laughs> well, that's great, Brian. It has been a pleasure to talk with you and you've given such great information that's going to be helpful to people. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Oh, Monty, my, you know, my pleasure. And thanks again for having me on here. I know when you invited me to do this, I was, I was really excited. So thank you for what you do getting great lawyers on your podcast to talk about a lot of the same things, but say it totally differently because, you know, we're all, we all learn differently too when they listen to this thing, these things. So good job on your end. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.